0: Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. Our mission at Better Boards is to provide proven solutions for creating more effective boards. Our evidence-based board evaluations and board development programs deliver tangible results. To fulfill our mission, we listen and give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Every time you tune in, we'll help you to develop and reinvigorate your board know-how and practice With insights, data, and practical advice. All the views expressed in our podcast are the views of our podcast partners and not those of better boards. I'm honored and humbled that Dr. Emily Schuckberg, OBE, is joining me in this episode. Emily is a world leading client scientist and gifted science communicator. She's a reader in environmental data science in the Department of Computer Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge. In her previous role at the British Antarctic Survey, she led a National Research Program on Polar Climate Change. She is the Director of Cambridge Zero. Cambridge Zero is a bold and ambitious new climate change initiative that is calling the world's brightest and best to join in and create a zero-carbon future. Welcome, Emily. I'm very honoured that for this podcast, a world-leading climate scientist is joining me, Dr. Emily Schutberg. Did I get this right? You got that right.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. So, let's start. Let me first ask you, is climate change man-made? So, the evidence around the human influence on climate is absolutely overwhelming. If we look at the atmosphere today it has more than 415 pots per million of carbon dioxide in it. That's carbon dioxide levels that are higher than we have ever seen throughout all of human History. So the air that we're breathing in today has more carbon dioxide than has been breathed in by any of our predecessors. You have to go back at least three million years, if not much further, to find equivalent levels of carbon dioxide. And that increase in the last 150 years has been driven by our use of fossil fuels and other land use changes that have occurred as we have industrialised. We know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. That's also been known for more than a century. And so you would expect an increase in carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere to lead to increase in temperature. And that is what we've seen. And we've seen more than one degree Celsius increase in temperature over the last 150 years. Now, you might think that one degree doesn't sound like a very large number, but it translates to a very substantially increased risk of extreme events and we're already seeing those impacts of climate change here and now today. So heat waves that before any climate change would have occurred perhaps a couple of times this century, we're now seeing happen every few years and they are associated with um, a significant rise in death rates, particularly among elderly people or the very young, vulnerable groups. We've seen just this last few months, the wildfires in Australia, floods in the north of England, disruption to lives and livelihoods and a terrible impact on our natural world.
0: And yet there are still people, as you're all too aware of, who say, hey, this is just a normal fluctuation. Well,
1: that, that just simply goes against the scientific evidence.
0: As a world-leading climate scientist,
1: what are, in your view, the key data points every board should be aware of? The key data points are quite simple. I've already described. Carbon dioxide levels and actually those of other greenhouse gases in in the atmosphere are utterly unprecedented throughout all of human history temperature increase. We have seen, even just since the 1990s to today, we've seen half a degree of increase. If we see another half a degree where we are today, we will have broken 1.5 degrees of warming. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, put out a report last year very clearly emphasised the risks of going above 1.5 degrees Celsius, the risks in terms of the dramatic increase in the number of people globally who are exposed to the risks associated with climate change, the risks to our natural world, our wildlife, and the risks, I think really critically, of a catastrophic shock occurring. So my colleagues are currently in Antarctica looking at the West Antarctic ice sheet, there's a couple of key glaciers that are critical to the stability of that um, ice sheet, Pine Island Glacier and the Thwaites Glacier. Quite a lot of evidence that they are already in irreversible retreat. If that ice sheet collapses, that leads to three metres of sea level rise eventually, which would be devastating. I mean, you think of any of the fourth megacities, most of them are in coastal regions, the amount of devastation of the infrastructure, the amount of displacement of people with even a fraction of that level of sea level rise would be just catastrophic. There are a number of other critical components of the climate system that are equally vulnerable. There are vast stores of frozen methane in the Arctic, for example, and if that frozen methane starts to get released out into the atmosphere as the world warms, then we can see a significant acceleration of climate change. We're concerned about the potential for the rapid dieback of the Amazon rainforest and so forth and so forth and so forth. And the risks of those catastrophic shocks occurring increases substantially as we increase the temperature. To so make it tangible
0: for our listeners. What's the timescale we are talking about? And can you name some countries, some cities that would be affected first?
1: So the critical timescale is the timescale required for action. It is absolutely clear that this decade, the 2020s, are the decade in which Unless we act now, we will have left a legacy of of devastation for millennia. And the reason that that is so crucially important is that despite the Paris Agreement um, that we had back in 2015, it had the ambition of limiting temperature rise to well below 2 degrees with an ambition to keep it below 1.5 degrees. Despite that, global emissions of carbon dioxide continue to increase year on year at the moment, not decrease. And it is very clear that if we want to realise those ambitions of the Paris Agreement, today we need to be reversing that trend so that we halve emissions over this coming decade, so that by 2030 we return to the global emissions levels of 1980, and that we then continue by mid-century globally We've reached net zero emissions. And then for the rest of this century beyond, we actively take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That's the scale of the challenge. And it's that challenge is today.
0: And yet, when I speak with boards, there are so many priorities, there so many issues on their agenda. They are tired, of course. So there are governance issues, there are political issues. And they are saying, look, there are so many, what we must do, what we need to, what we should do. Mm-hmm. The question for us is, of course... How do we do it? And also they're telling me that, yes, investors have stepped up, but the investors are still mainly looking at the financial measures. How shall boards really prioritize now?
1: So I think it's a two-stage process. I think setting the long-term target, a net zero date, is critically important because I think that sets the, the trajectory that you need to be on. Having done that, then the next critically important thing is to work out how that translates into tangible action that can be taken today, this year, and over the next five years. It's really identifying what that solution space in the very near term looks like that puts you on a trajectory that is consistent with those long-term targets that's so critically important. And I think it's that, you know, it's both those stages and that you can't do one without the other, they're both critically important. And actually, if you do it right, then you support many many other different aspects that you might be also um, wanting to pursue i mean good governance is just one example of, of that but actually the other thing that we're seeing i mean like, even with, within cambridge university we're seeing this is when you start to set those ambitious you no know, this is like you know the, the the greatest the great audacious goals right when you start to set those great audacious goals then you unlock so much energy and enthusiasm and excitement among people to actually really step up to the challenge it becomes an energizing movement that can actually define an organization
0: large organizations are hugely complex the supply chains the purchase chain. i mean all these processes where should god start i mean how to grapple how to start all of this that is what i'm hearing very often it's it's just too big almost to grasp
1: well, it is big let's not let's not pretend otherwise right this is a global challenge that we have a very short amount of time to fix and it spans all geographies all sectors of society and i uh, no, uh, so let's not pretend it's easy where do you start i mean you have to start somewhere and i think that actually Large organisations they are hugely successful in managing a very complex landscape, and so it is bringing together all that expertise and applying it to try and tackle these problems. So, you know, I've been with many organisations. It depends on which sector they're in. If they're on a you know more engineering sector, for example, they say, well, you know, actually, you know, in some sense, this is a bit like an engineering challenge. Or if they're in a you know in a more supply chain business, they say, well, actually, you know, we kind of know how to do this, right? We know. How to deliver products through the supply chain so I think it's about using corporate expertise and applying it in these these areas but it, the reason it requires an absolute laser focus at the board level is because it is so so complex and so it does need to be a whole organization response rather than just you know put, put off in some sort of side team that's worrying about ESG or something it, this needs to be absolutely front and center at the business plan and with the whole mission of the organisation. And again, actually, you know, when, when you do that, we've even seen that within Cambridge. So I'm the director of this new initiative in Cambridge called Cambridge Zero, which in a sense is doing that within the university context. You know, never before in the 800 years history of the University of Cambridge have we ever done something that is so system-wide across the university, but we very much feel the overall mission of the university is to contribute to society. You know, we very much feel that if we're going to be true to that mission, then we need to have a singular focus on this grand global challenge at this time and to deploy the entire university resources in order to do that. As I keep emphasising, having done so, we've generated this sense of excitement I've never known previously in the university.
0: Amazing. Tell us a little bit more about Cambridge Zero. What is it? What is it meant to do? And how do you go about it?
1: Well, so, our, you know, our overall, what is it meant to do? We're, we're, you know, we're doing everything we can to deploy the university's resources, capacity and convening power to help support the transition to a zero carbon world. And we're doing that Across the research capacity of the university, and so that's really you know it spans almost all of the research at the uh, university from uh, world well, leading work on looking at next generation battery technologies, for example, we're looking at new ways of looking at mobility. There's an amazing projects going on in the engineering department looking at rapidly accelerating the development of electric aircraft, for example. We're looking at how we can generate new forms of fuels, developing artificial leaves, for example. We're looking at, uh, from the more social sciences perspective, how can we go beyond GDP as a measure of prosperity to incorporate natural and social capital into those measures as well? We're looking at, can we explore new novel ways of um, trying to, to actually start to repair the climate system, to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? through nat- nature-based mechanisms, enhancing natural ways of doing it, what are the legal and ethical dimensions associated with that as well, and so forth. So it really does span a huge range of different disciplines, and what we're trying to do is integrate those together. We're then also looking at the education side of the university at all levels. We are looking at how we can enhance our undergraduates education to ensure that we're training up the next generation of leaders with the skills that are going to be required to navigate through the coming decades and an understanding of not just climate change and sustainability, but the broader environmental conservation, biodiversity, some of these other planetary threats that we're being exposed to at the moment. We're looking at how that then translates through to graduate education and training, to executive education and training, to a wider role in terms of raising awareness throughout all of global society. And then we have a a singular focus on not just undertaking the research and the education side of things, but then ensuring that that really rapidly gets taken out into real world deployment. Because it's all very well us having the ideas and the innovations in the university. But if we're really going to respond globally on the time scales that are required, then those need to be rapidly taken out into real world deployment. So we have a large emphasis on external engagement and really integrating that into the research framework, for example. And that is across our industrial collaborations, engagement with business of all sizes from startup community through to large corporates, our engagement with policy makers. engagement with the public at large and with schools for example so there's a whole set of different activities that we're doing right from a very local level through to global international level where we're really trying to enhance and much more substantially integrate that and use our convening power across all those sectors and across the global academic community as well because we recognize that although we can play a role in leading this transition we can't do it alone. And so we really need to bring everyone together. So if board members listen now to this, Mm -hmm. what can they do? Can they get in
0: touch with you? How could you support them?
1: Please do get in touch because absolutely central part of what we're trying to do here is to galvanize a global movement. In my view, One of the most powerful mechanisms for for us to be able to do that is to engage with boards globally, because we can, you know, so much of this, we've already talked about how complex this is, because because for any organisation, it's not just their organisation, it's their supply chains and its entire network of different players that need to be brought together. If we can play some role in helping to convene those sector by sector, then I would be delighted. And if we can then start to look at things from a much more multidimensional perspective, looking at the policy regulation standards and so forth framework at the same time as bringing together the different players across the industry sectors. And, you know, where, where relevant, bringing in the public at large, whether they're consumers or other participants in the overall picture, then I think we can really start to generate the change that we need on the timescale that we require.
0: So very practically, a board member is listening to this now and says, you know what, <laughs> I actually have pressure at home. <laughs> mm. My kids participated uh, yes. yeah, in the campaigns, they, they want to do something, maybe three things they can do in the next board meeting.
1: Hmm. Go back to where you started there. I am really having so many conversations with senior people, at, you know, across all sorts of different sectors who are saying exactly what you just said. My kids tell me I've got to do this. And they are absolutely right. You no, know, it really, as I emphasized at the start, it is decisions that are taken today that are going to determine the course of the next millennia. It really is the case that decisions taken today will determine the future of our children and grandchildren. So let's be clear about that. You know, what ca- concretely can be done? I think the first thing is to ask questions. So to put it on the board agenda, not just once a year, you know, every board meeting, this needs to be a critical agenda item to discuss. So that's the first thing to bring it into the discussion. I think the second thing is then to really, as you would on, on any issue, to start to put together some very clear, distinct, and well-defined targets for how you, as an organisation. Are going to respond to this and in doing so recognize the wider influence that you have because it is not just you know every individual and every organization has a sphere of influence that's much greater than them themselves you know so it's about whether or not not you can just transform your own organization but how can you be part of the leadership that's required to inspire global change because this is a global endeavour to, to respond to it so it's putting it on the agenda setting targets and then ensuring that that's actually enacted on.
0: Fantastic how can people get in touch with you? Do you want to provide our listeners with some contact details
1: who are so interested now to say wow? <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I mean the simplest thing is just we, we have a website, you know, if you can google Cambridge Zero and you'll find our website, you'll understand the scale of ambition of what we're trying to achieve by looking at that and then you can get in contact with us through them. fantastic
0: emily it was a real honor thank you for making time for participating in this podcast thank you so much and i wish you really well for your work and really to all our listeners please take the opportunity to get in touch with emily and her team many thanks as a note for your diary New episodes are available every first and third Thursday of the month. Subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts to never miss an episode. We love to hear from you. If you would like to contribute to a future podcast or attend our popular breakfast conversations and receive regular updates on our activities, you can reach us on info at better